I want you to imagine this scene. It is 12 hours before Jesus would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Master, and our God. He secludes his disciples in an upper room, separates them from the world, secludes them, and he spends time talking about lessons in life, the the last will and testament, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. The final words, the final thoughts, the last lesson, the last lecture, if you will. And in chapter 13 of John 14, 15, 16, and 17, including a great prayer that he prayed, a high priestly prayer, we have these words of Jesus that are so full of hope and so full of promise. He promises the Holy Spirit. He said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. My very presence, my very spirit will be in you, and you will be alive in me. What a promise. He spoke of the hope of heaven, saying, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. He talked about the promise of prayer, that we could ask anything in his name, and by God's grace, we will receive. He talked about some of the most important questions and answers in life. What really matters most? Say, I wonder if it was your last words. If you had 12 hours, 12 hours to live, what would you leave with your family, with your friends? What legacy have you lived? People talk about leaving a legacy. It's far better to live a legacy than it is to leave a legacy. Because if you live a legacy, what is left will impact your family, your friends, your church, the world. But what if you had some final words? There's an American book, and maybe it's come this way, called The Last Lecture. And a dying professor, a Northeastern professor in the United States, spoke final words. And it's a runaway bestseller in America because people want to know, how do you live and how do you die? There's a popular series in uh, the American church right now called One Month to Live. How would you live if you had one month to live? 30 days. How would it change your life? How would it change your family if you had 30 days to live, one month to live? So obviously it's exceedingly eternally important to hear these final words of Jesus. And before he said anything, he did something amazing. He stripped off the outer garments and he began to move from disciple to disciple in that room. Imagine these men reclining at a Middle Eastern table Jesus begins to do something that a household slave had failed to do, the disciples themselves had neglected to do. Jesus began to wash the disciples' dirty feet. One by one, he humbled himself and washed their feet. 
Before the lesson came the life of Jesus, teaching them and demonstrating to them this most valuable lesson of life. You know, when Jesus took off that outer cloak, it symbolized, it signifies the fact that Jesus laid aside his dignity in coming to us. He never laid aside his deity. He is always God. But he laid aside his dignity, didn't he? Paul put it this way. He emptied himself and became like a slave, like a servant. He humbled himself. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That name of Jesus that we've been worshiping this evening. And my, how we've been worshiping him. Just singing, magnify your name. Glorify your name. It is because of his love which has come down to us, down from heaven to earth, all the way to you and me. It is because of that love that God has given him this name that needs to be magnified and glorified. This was a lesson that John the Apostle never forgot. He, of course, is the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who remembered these events and recorded them. But later in his life, he became known as the Apostle of Love. It wasn't always so with John. There was a time he was known as the Son of Thunder. And he earned his nickname because on one occasion, he he demanded that the Lord would ring, ring thunder and lightning and judgment upon some people he didn't agree with. But God began to turn his heart. He began to see the life of Jesus and that son of thunder ultimately was known as the apostle of love. There's a tradition that tells us that when John, an aged apostle, was asked to give his final message, his final words to the church, he gave one simple sentence. It was the lesson that he never forgot that he learned on the eve of the cross. John's words were these, love one another. Love one another. And that's what we must learn, to love one another. No commandment, now hear me now, no commandment is more important than this commandment. Of verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love even as I have loved you. Now what is new about the commandment to love? The Old Testament taught us to love. The Old Testament taught us that God is love, that God loves us. He said, yeah, I've loved you with an everlasting love. We're taught in the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbors. How? As ourselves. As we love ourselves. So what is new about this commandment is this. Before Jesus, we could only love as we love ourselves. That's human love. But now, in a new way, in a new day, we are to love even as Jesus has loved us. And that's why this is a new commandment. Now, to be loved, 
And to give love is the greatest need of life. A famed psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger said this, love is the medicine for our sick old world. If people can learn to give and receive love, they will usually recover from their physical or their mental illnesses. But yet, we live in a loveless world. We live in a world in which selfishness prevails. And I tell you how to be absolutely unhappy all your life. And that is to live for yourself. And neglect to love others. In the Metro Museum of Art in New York City, there is a bust of the poet Edgar Allan Poe. And this inscription is is written beneath. Great in genius, unhappy in life, wretched in death. Stress happens. Stress happens when our expectations are not met by our experience. I mean, you expect to to get on the underground at a certain time and you miss it. You're late for an appointment. That creates stress, certainly on a minor level, but you add enough stress points in our lives day after day after day after day in the hurry, the worry. Someone said you could describe our lives today as hurry, worry, and bury. Uh, you, you add it up over a lifetime and all the points produce pressure. And as a result, we have so many problems today in, in our homes, in our health, uh, in our pure happiness because of this pressure. We know that stress is linked to illness. My physician back in America is also, I'm his pastor, he's my physician, is, is the world-renowned Dr. Kenneth Cooper. Uh, You may have heard that name, especially if you're interested in exercise at all. Dr. Cooper is now 78 years of age. He's known as the father of aerobics. He's the man that got us all out and running. He wrote a book back in 1968 called Aerobics. He actually coined a word. Wouldn't you like to be someone who actually gave a word to the dictionary? And to the vocabulary. Uh, Well, aerobics is a word that he put together, a couple of words. And it's not just jumping up and down and dancing. It means to live life with air. And, of course, his theory that that way back then many doctors were considering these theories as absolute bunk. But uh, now they've been proven, of course. and, And we know that exercise is so vital to our health in every way, physically as well as emotionally and including spiritually because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Dr. Cooper, uh, my physician, uh, talks about stress. He talks to me about it quite a bit. And he reminds us all, he's written a book on the subject, but he reminds us that it is linked to illnesses of all kinds, cardiovascular illnesses, illnesses, heart and and stroke, uh, uh, gastric diseases as well as illnesses, of course depression and even cancer. My friend Dr. O.S. Hawkins is the head of the uh, Guidestone Financial Services in America of the Southern Baptist Convention. This is the organization that provides annuity and retirement and medical uh, service insurance uh, to ministers and their wives and their families. And Dr. Hawkins recently reported that the, num- the top two prescriptions given out, paid for by insurance to ministers 
are prescriptions that have to do with emotional stress disorders and kinds of illnesses. One and two. And it may be a kind of secret that some of us in the ministry are keeping to ourselves. We're all stressed up and nowhere to go. And by the way, Dr. Cooper uh, notes that, uh, that stress produces obesity, being overweight, and therefore complicates our, our system. He, he suggests that if you spell desserts backward, what do you get? Stressed. <laughs> And uh, maybe that extra dish of ice cream or, you know, overeating or whatever, it, it is compensating. And, of course, people compensate uh, for a variety of reasons. But while stress is certainly an adversary in our lives, it can also be an ally. Did you know that? Did you know that we can turn our stress into success? And that's more than a, a simple cliche. I, I, I believe it is true. I believe God expects us to turn our stress into a positive life experience. If we learn how to manage stress. Now, we're all going to deal with it. We are dealing with it. So how are we going to deal with it becomes the biggest question. How can we manage stress in the ministry? That's what I want to talk to you about. Because stress really is a warning signal. It's like some red light that goes off in your automobile that indicates that something is wrong. Now, what happens when some red light goes off in your automobile and, uh, and, and saying something goes wrong? Do you take a hammer and bash it and knock it out? Well, that's what many of us do with our stress. I mean, the warning light comes on, so what do we do? We think, well, we'll just work harder or we'll pray harder. Uh, uh, or we'll serve more. And, and we just sort of smash the light and keep on going. And that leads to what? A lot of trouble. A lot of trouble in our lives, our homes, our families, our marriages. Now, therefore, if we can somehow learn to manage stress in the ministry, we can make it an ally rather than simply an adversary. Now, no doubt about it, and we're going to get to the Scripture. In fact, you may want to be finding James chapter 1 as I'm kind of introducing my subject, and I'm going to have to talk fast as well because my time is limited. But ministry is extremely high stress. And I, I, I sat down and I thought about some of the reasons why. Maybe, you know, that, that's, that saying, was it Socrates who said a, a, an exam, a self-examined life is not worth living? And so sometimes it may be good for you to think about, okay, what is stressing me right now? Is it a family issue? Is it a financial issue? Is it a faith issue in my life? Is it something in my church? But I just sort of looked out uh, as to some of the, the stress points in our lives, and uh, I came up uh, with several of these pressure points that I want to mention to you at the outset before we get to our Scripture. First of all, there's stress from the spotlight. If you're in ministry, you are in the spotlight to a certain degree. And if God gives you some success in ministry, so that people know you and know your church or know your ministry or know your life or know your uh, uh, work for Christ, then the spotlight is on. And what comes with the spotlight? Increased scrutiny. 
And living in the fishbowl, whether it's in the pastorium where the pastor lives, he and his wife, or whether it's in your house as you're serving God, living in this spotlight uh, can put pressure on you that you never knew before. And you don't have to have a huge ministry to be in the spotlight. I mean, I, in my, one of my first church, church experiences where I was a pastor, I mean, a high attendance day was 35 people. But I was still in the spotlight, you see, because I, I, I was the pastor. And therefore, the more, spot, the more success, the more spotlight, the more spotlight, the more scrutiny. And so often, the spotlight, as I've talked to pastors and ministers, the spotlight, uh, the scrutiny doesn't even often comes, or well, it often comes, but it doesn't always come just from without. Sometimes the spotlight comes from within. Because a man or a woman in ministry may not be, be prepa- feel prepared for the challenges and the call that we have been given. I, I saw a book title one, one day. I, didn't, I, I never read the book, but I thought it was an interesting title. Uh, it says, if I'm so successful, why do I feel like a failure? And I think that describes many people in ministry who are being told you're successful, your ministry is successful, look at you, we're put on a pedestal, uh, we're put in a pulpit, we're put on a platform, and yet sometimes the pressure comes from within because of own issues of our own identity and who we are in Christ, our own security. Uh, maybe we haven't come to, to, to peace with those issues in our own lives. So there's the pressure of the spotlight. Secondly, there's the pressure or the stress of the schedule, or I think you say over here, schedule, all right? The schedule, your calendar. I mean, your pressure, I, I carry around, many, many of you carry around a little PDA, and we're never disconnected from our work these days. We almost become addicted to our calendars, to our, to our schedules, to, to our appointment book, and we're constantly bombarded with responsibilities and invitations. Have you noticed that? Everybody wants you to come to their party. Everyone wants you to come to their function. Everyone wants you to come to their Bible study. Everyone wants you to come to their hospital bed. Everyone, you could go on and on. And and therefore, the the stress of of the schedule is constantly bombarding us. And look, who doesn't like to be included? I mean, if, if you find out that there's an important meeting going on in your church and you're not invited, you might be offended by that. I mean, I mean we want to be there. And there are things that we want to do. There are things that we need to do. There are things that we must do in ministry. And yet there's so seemingly so little time to do it. This is why one of the best stress uh, relievers, I think, is for, to make sure that you, every day before God, are making your own appointments and schedule. I'm not talking about using a secretary, but that you're making your own calendar and your own schedule because if you don't plan your life, somebody else will do it for you. Right? If you don't plan your life and plan your schedule, somebody else will do it for you. And again, the size of your ministry 
has nothing to do with this principle. All of us need to be asking ourselves, uh, what can I delegate? Because it's either delegate or disintegrate. (laughs) We must all be asking ourselves, what can I give to someone else? Isn't that what the apostles did in the book of Acts? When the pressure was on in ministry and the demands were growing uh, uh, more difficult, and and the widows were complaining that they weren't getting their just dues. And so what did the apostles do? They prayed. And then having prayed, God gave them a plan to delegate this assignment. And these were the embryonic deacons that were established there, those seven who were chosen to distribute uh, the ministry to the widows. And the apostles said, look, we have been given the assignment of the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus, the ministry of prayer, and we're going to make sure that we do a good job with that. And the the issue of priorities becomes a major focus. The most effective leadership principle for you to embrace is to do only what only you can do. Do what only you can do. Do only what only you can do. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a bit of a tongue twister. But... Do only what only you can do as a rule. Now, there are times as a pastor that I do things because they're right in front of me to do. And I'm not suggesting that we don't meet needs when we see them or respond when we see them. But it's something that earlier the young lady was talking about, establishing those boundaries uh, in our lives. So often we're living without boundaries and living without margins in ministry. But what we need to do is concentrate on the giftedness that God has given us, whether it is preaching or teaching or praying or leading or administrating or helping, whatever your spiritual giftedness may be, that these should be the areas of concentration. Because frankly, many of us are torn apart. We're going in every direction. And if you're available all the time, it won't be long before you're available none of the time. Amen or oh me. All right, so there it is. That's the schedule. But there's another uh, cause uh, for stress in the minister's life, in the spiritual leader's life. Let's call these the cynics or the critics. Anybody got any critics here? (laughs) Ooh. I find in talking to my pastor friends, in just talking to the men and women on our staff, talking with other ministry leaders, that this is one of the big, big things in ministry. We, we get beaten down with criticism and cynicism. Now, it should be said, I, I do know a way that you will never be criticized. Say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. <laughs> Say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing, and you will never be criticized. But if you're willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel, there will always be opposition. There will always be opposition, and if not persecution, there will be resistance, and there will be critics. The American comic Bill Cosby once said, I can't tell you what the key to success is, but I can tell you what the key to failure is, trying to please everyone. You know, in, in church and ministry as a pastor, I've had, to, 
I've had to learn some hard lessons along the way. And one of those lessons is, is to listen to your critics, give them a fair hearing, find out if there's a kernel of truth or if the whole thing is truth and respond to it in humility. But on the other hand, if you having honestly looked at a criticism and respond to it in your heart before God, uh, then move on without living in the criticism. Uh, again, let me see the hands of the pastors here today. Pastors or preachers. Pastors or preachers, all right? How many of you have had the experience? I mean, your whole church can be for you. They are praying for you. They're loving you. They're, they're, and then you get one anonymous letter. Or you got one obstreperous deacon who's on your case. And he's sitting right over there. Yeah, there he is, right over there. And you're preaching on Sunday, and the whole crowd's loving it, and, and, and the church is responding, but all you can think about is that guy sitting over there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, now, now we're on the same plane here. I mean, that's some, somehow human nature. And we have to learn how, if we're going to deal with stress and manage it, we have to, we have to be moving off you know, the, the little criticism, or it may be a big criticism, but we have to be willing to stand and boldly do what is the right thing and do it faithfully. Someone was asking me about our church yesterday. I think it was yesterday. We've been here about 48 hours. I'm not sure where my jet lag is right now. But, um, yes, it was yesterday. Because we actually moved our church from one site to another, and, and someone asked me, said, what? Well, how many members did you lose when you moved the church from one place to another? And I said, well, we anticipated that we would lose about 1,000 members. At that time, our, our church was about 12,000, 13,000 members, and we were expecting to lose about 1,000. And that, was, that would have been a significant hit. And, and every one of them, I felt like, you know, these, this is our flock. I don't want, I don't want to lose a one, and, you know. So we did a lot of things to make sure that we didn't lose people, if, if at all possible. But then I said something that I think shocked the person who was asking me the question. I said, but we knew, because we were doing the will of God, if we, if we made this change, if we made this change, that for every one that we lost, even though we didn't want to lose a one, I, I don't want to appear to be hard-hearted and arrogant here, all right? We didn't want to lose any lost little lambs. We said... I said, like Moses, we're leaving Egypt, not a hair, not a hoof, not a head's going to be left behind, all right? But I said, but we knew because of, of where we were going and the impact our ministry could have and because we sensed that God was saying this is the way, walk in it, we knew that for every one we lost, 50 would come to take their place. Now again, please hear what I'm saying. Sometimes you have to be willing to count your losses. Isn't that what Jesus said about counting the cost before you build a tower? And you will never move forward in the ministry or in the work of Christ if you're constantly worried about what the critics say. Know what God wants you to do and then gracefully, humbly do it when you have counted the cost. Uh, Jesus said... Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
We had a great American preacher of yesteryear by the name of R.G. Lee, Robert, Robert Lee. And uh, he told, he, he had retired from the ministry and he told his uh, successor, in fact, his successor was Dr. Adrian Rogers. Many of you know Dr. Rogers now in heaven. He was on the radio over here. But uh, he said to Dr. Rogers, uh, when you do my funeral, if you get up there and say in my funeral that everyone loved Dr. Lee, I pray God will give me the strength one more time to kick the, kick the roof off that casket and stand up and say, that ain't true. That isn't true. No, we, we all will find our critics, learn from our critics, but what happens is in ministry, I, I really think this is an issue. We allow our critics to put so much pressure and so much stress in life that it causes so many of these things that we were talking about earlier. Uh, the burnout and, and, and the depression and the anxiety and the stress-related physical disorders. Oswald Sanders says this, Maturity is moving from a thin skin and a hard heart to a thick skin and a soft heart. I like that. So expect critics, expect the occasional anonymous note. You know, D.L. Moody, the American evangelist in the 19th century, one time someone sent him up a piece of paper and on it just wrote the word fool. Moody held it up in front of the congregation and said, you know, I've received many anonymous letters in which someone refused to sign their name. He said, this is the first letter I've ever gotten that someone signed their name and didn't give me the letter. <laughs> so that's what you can do with anonymous notes or letters. David uh, Wheeler, a professor of a Bible college, said, may you have the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the skin of a rhino. All right, then stress comes from the sponges. <laughs> Anybody have some sponges in your lives that are just sucking the life out of you, draining you? Churches and ministries can become magnets for the needy, and they should. You know, we should have the kind of church that is a Jesus church where every person with needs comes. But when people with great needs come, of course, many of them want to attach their need to you. And this is why it is so important that you manage ministry and priorities and those things that we talked about earlier. But there are people that sort of latch on and they drain you. They drain your time with your family. Uh, they, they, they just soak up your energy. Does anybody here know what I'm talking about? I mean, I know I'm on somewhat, you know, where angels may fear to tread on this subject because, you know, tonight I'm going to be talking about loving people and loving, Christ, loving people as, as Jesus loved people, that new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you and Oh, how Jesus loved us sacrificially and selflessly and steadfastly. 
And we're to love people like that. But if there are scores and scores of people who are demanding and therefore draining you of life, again, you won't ultimately be able to serve if you are constantly caught up with those who are soaking the life out of you. There are always people in ministry, I've noticed, that want a little piece of you, right? Some of them want to be your best buddy. You know, they like being around preachers or, or, or people, you know, who are on platforms. And so some people just sort of, sort of latch on to you because they like hanging out with you. Uh, other people, they, you know, they get, they get to you because they feel like that you're the only one they can talk to. That's a warning sign, by the way. I mean, you, you shouldn't be the only person that can help that person. And what did Paul say about ministry? That we are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And um, so there are these sponges. And we need to be careful because they will cause us stress. If you have the privilege of having an assistant in your ministry, make sure she is aware of the sponges. And those who would take you down. Um. then let me mention the stress of the resistors. The stress of the resistors. All leaders know what it means to be met with resistance. Kind of relates to criticism here. But really with resistors, I'm talking about those who resist change. Now, over here in Great Britain, in this great city, you all don't have people that resist change, do you? Oh, you do. (laughs) Well, if you are a pastor and a spiritual leader, there will always be those who resist change. In fact, I'm convinced it's not just that they resist change. It's just that they don't want to be changed. Right? You know, it's, it's all about me. And when we get comfortable, you've heard the seven last words of the church, right? We never did it that way before. And, and, and there are people who will constantly resist change because they don't want to be changed. And these can drain you and deplete you of energy and even burn you out. Uh, we Christian leaders can win the battle and lose the war if we're not careful. <laughs> I heard about a, a wealthy lawyer. He was out hunting. This took place in America. You could make it someplace here in England. But he was a New York lawyer. He was down in the country of Tennessee. He was hunting. He shot a bird. His bird fell over a barbed wire fence, and he was climbing over the fence to get that bird. And as he was doing that, an older man drove up in his tractor and said, what are you doing, sonny boy? He said, well, I shot this bird, and I'm climbing over this fence to get it. He said, that bird is on my property. It belongs to me. And the fellow said, no, it's my bird. I shot it. It belongs to me. He said, well, down here in Tennessee, we have a way of settling disputes like this out here in the country. 
He said, we have something called the three-kick rule. And the New York lawyer, he sort of wrenches up his brow and says, okay, what's the three-kick rule? He said, well, each man gets a turn at kicking the other one three times and so on until the last man standing and therefore, you know, somebody gives up and, and, and there's the winner. So the New York lawyer, he sizes up this old gentleman and he figures, man, I, this is easy pickings right here. So he said, all right, he said, to the old man, he said, okay, you go first. So the first thing the old man did is kicked him right in the shin with his boots. It buckled him a little bit, then he just kicked him right in the solar plexus. Third time, boom, just knocked the air right out of it. By now this man's on the ground, and he kicks him up the side of the head as hard as he could, his three kicks. The New York lawyer staggers to his feet, takes his breath, he said, all right, now it's my turn. And the old man said, ah, you can have the bird, I give up. <laughs> now, is that good English humor or what, okay? But it, it, it makes my point. A lot of times we're... We're kicking at stuff and, 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 and fighting back and, and res, you know, the resistors, you know, we go at them. And, and, and you know, you, you can, you know, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but it's not worth it typically, right? And so often we need to stop resisting the resistors. And one of the things that I just love to do, this is a good thing about a long-term ministry. I will have been at our church now for, 20, I'm in my 20th year. And one of the good things about staying a long time is you just outlive and outlast your critics <laughs> and all the cynics. And that's a good thing. Well, our scripture. Our scripture says in James chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, stress points, tests, Many colored trials. Thank God for every color of trial. There's a color of grace. There's the manifold grace of God for the many trials, various trials. Same word. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the word that I hope you're looking for. That's the life. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And frankly, some of us, our ministry has become a job. And for some, it is a job you hate. And yet you know. That the ministry is not to be a mere job, it is to be a joy. Count it all joy. That God would renew our hearts, our spirit, our lives to the degree that we would once again hear those trumpets in the morning. I, I wish I had more time. I had a lot more material to talk to you about. Maybe we'll do it on another day. But I, I, I have a friend who wrote a book called Trumpets in the Morning. 
He got his title because he asked a friend who had been in ministry. The, the friend had dropped out of ministry years ago and, and he had quit for various reasons. He just despised his, the ministry. I think he had somewhat defaulted uh, in his ministry morally and he was out of ministry all those years. And my friend, Harper Shannon, the author of this book, said to this gentleman, Have, do you ever miss being a pastor? Do you ever miss being in the ministry? The fellow thought for a while and he said, you know, there's a lot of things about the ministry that I don't miss. But the one thing that I really miss are hearing those trumpets in the morning. Referring to that trumpet call that compels us forward in the, in the life that God has given us. The trumpet of God that rouses the dead when we preach. The, the, the trump of God that, that gets us up out of bed with a reason and a purpose in our lives. That we're not just putting in time. That we're not just doing a job. That we're not sterile professionals doing a ministry that we have a ministry that is given to us by God. It's the difference, Paul said, between a received ministry and an achieved ministry. Remember Paul said, this ministry that I have received from the Lord? You remember that? We don't need achieved ministries, but received ministries. Because when we live ministry like this, we then recognize our identity, we have our security, we can deal with all those, those stressors in our lives, and we can stay healthy physically, emotionally, and spiritually. One of the things, and I'm going to close with this, one of the things that Dr. Cooper says that we all should be doing is taking some good exercise every day, thus aerobics. He says that exercise is nature's, therefore God's, best tranquilizer. And I've been practicing exercise of some kind all my life. I'm not in the greatest of shape. I, I can't do what I did 20, 30 years ago. But I try to do some kind of physical exercise, and I can tell you that the physical side dramatically impacts and influences the spiritual as well as the emotional as well as the spiritual side. I often pray when I walk. Make it a prayer walk and, and, and therefore exercise my body as well as my soul. So I want to really challenge you. Maybe this is something you're already doing. Most, you, you, you all look fit as a fiddle to me. But maybe you're not getting the exercise you ought to get. And therefore, the, you're, you're not, you're on the adrenaline thing all, all the time. You know, a lot of us in pastorates and ministries are adrenaline junkies. We live on the rush. We live on the adrenaline. This is why if you're a pastor, you get up and preach on Sunday morning and you lay it out there, you preach with passion and heart and soul and the adrenaline is just flowing through your body. That's why you feel so crummy on Mondays. Took me a while to figure that out. Somebody asked me, Pastor, do you take Mondays off? I said, no man, I don't want to feel that bad on my own time. 
So all of that energy depletion, you can build it back up like a slow charge. So rest, recreation, restoration, all of these things, they matter. God bless you. Thank you. And let your ministry be a joy and not just a job.